This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. It is a very special podcast this week and I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Team Murray past and present. Shortly you'll hear from ATP Tennis Radio regular and former coach of Andy Murray, Miles McLagan. But first from Matt Little, who's been with Andy for well over a decade now, helping to shape the career, body and mind of one of the greatest players to have played the game. Matt's area of expertise is strength and conditioning, but how could I not start by asking him to dish the dirt on Mr McLagan? Never question Miles in terms of uh, line calls or cheetah or anything. That's a real, that's his soft underbelly. You don't want to go there. And just kind of generally just watch watch him when in a, in a competitive situation because uh, see a very different Miles, I can tell you that. Seb, you went, you went straight in at the deep end there, huh? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know about first impressions. You know, what are your first impressions what, of each what other? What don't you like then? about Miles? <laughs> <laughs> That's a separate podcast and a long one too. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you meet? So um, we began, I suppose, when Andy first put a, a larger team of individuals together uh, back in 2007. Miles was Andy's coach, and I was one of the strength and conditioning coaches that Andy brought on board at that stage alongside Jez Green. And we had the physio Andy Ireland. So we were kind of the core nucleus of uh, what was then sort of termed Team Murray. So that, that was the, the start of the journey, essentially. We did the, uh, the first training camp in Miami in 2007, which um, lots of fond memories from that camp and many more, of course. Heck of a ride. Miles, what are your memories? Yeah, it was it was a it was a great ride actually, and um, you know it, it's funny. Wonder what your thoughts on. I'm not sure we've ever actually talked about this, Matt, but you know there's a, there's a few people claim credit for putting the team together, and, and I'm not sure that was the case, but um, I think there was a bit of luck involved. You know, obviously that's, that's a long time ago, ten years now, more, more. What are we? Twelve, thirteen years, and. I'm sure like you, you've done, I've done a lot of reading and, you know, talk about teams and personalities and it all worked. And a lot of those teams, the personalities fitted together, but it was almost quite a lot of luck, I think. No, it wasn't. And the part of the the tone that was set, I think, as well, it was set by Andy, you know, the the kind of the camaraderie that we all had, you know, with Andy being that central individual and, and the way he is and his personality, you know, just continual kind of fun around uh, every session, whether that was a strength and conditioning session, a tennis session, the warm-up, um, the cool-down, the track sessions, whatever it was, there was continual a competitive edge, but also just so much fun. Um, you had to have pretty thick skin. I certainly had to at the very start, but actually it was it was just brilliant. Really, really great times. Well, listen, I'm sure we'll get We'll hear a lot more about Andy as, as we as we go on, inevitably. But um, let's talk more. You know, let's get into the strength and conditioning side of things. Um, as part of your new online coaching platform, maximize your performance. Your stated aim, Matt, is to and I quote: change the way tennis players train both on and off court to reflect the demands of the modern game. So let's start with that. Why do we need to change the way tennis players train? Well, that is a big one and um, something I'm really quite passionate about at the moment. So for the last kind of five years, I've been using wearable technology with Andy. So essentially, the, the main kind of mission of that was, I mean, I've, I've been in tennis for, for two decades. The, the main mission of that is to try and get some more objective numbers around what is happening to the player, both in practice sessions and in match situations. That's kind of been the, the sort of... Um, the holy grail for me in a way is is to figure out rather than us saying how tough was that session or how easy was that session how tough was that match uh, is actually to get some numbers which reflect that um, and in its simplest terms compare one day to the next one match to the next uh, one period of training to the next uh, and one year to the next even uh, if, if you were to collect enough of the data, essentially, just so that you can start to figure out peaks and, and troughs in terms of loading of the tennis players. You know, we all know that because tennis players compete for 12, or they can compete for 12 months a year, 
that it's really important to get the balance right between preparing to play and developing your game and your body, actually competing as well, and then resting and recovering and figuring out along the way where things have worked and gone really well. And then also trying to figure out where things haven't worked. And like I say, just trying to put some numbers to that so that we can actually, rather than say yesterday was harder than today, we could say yesterday was twice. We know for a fact that yesterday was twice as hard as it was today. And so that's essentially been one of my kind of one of my passions of, of late because I really genuinely believe that this is for the future of tennis players' health. That that's something that we need to make sure that we control is their is their loading on the court, and of course, how that then also feeds in to the work that I do. Because if someone's had a particularly hard day on the court, then I need to know that, and therefore I may need to adjust what I'm doing. If you don't have that data, you're you're either guessing or actually people say, "Well, I'm really not too worried about what's happened on the court. I need to make sure I get my work done." And then the tennis coach could say, well, well, yeah, but I need to get my work done. Then all of a sudden, you know, the person that tends to lose out is the athlete in the middle who, who is really the only important person. Talk to us a little more about what loading means, Matt. And also perhaps give us an example of a recent example of where you've really had to hone in and use the data to, to, to get a player to change what they're doing, perhaps. There's lots of loads of different ways to measure loading, but the two most simplest forms would be internal loading, which would be things like heart rate and monitoring and, and things like that. Um, and then there is external loading, which is the impact of gravity essentially on the body and how much impact is going through the muscles and joints of the body. That's that's putting it in its simplest term. The aspect that I've been the most interested in, especially because of tennis players' joints and muscles and some of the overuse injuries that we see, has been more the external loading side that I've perhaps drilled into a little deeper. And so using those wearable technology devices that you would have seen a lot of the football players wearing, rugby players wearing with the vests they run around in in, in training and in matches, um, that device, and there's lots of different types of those devices, can essentially tell me Every time you, you run, it measures movement up, down, forward, backwards, left and right, and basically spits out a number, which tells me how much kind of impact that body has, has put up with in that session. It can also tell me how many high-speed movements that they've done, because we also know from research that that tends to also be a, a, quite a, a significant injury predictor in a way. is not so much just the loading, because if you – run up and down on the spot for a particular period of time that might not actually cause um, a great deal of breakdown of tissues but it's more the high speed movements left and right that, that our tennis players now do and it's fantastic that we see these kind of 85 kilo muscle bound athletes you know sprinting at six and a half seven meters a second jamming on the brakes and then sprinting back in the opposite direction those are huge forces that uh, the body is having to absorb uh, and produce. So to get some get some information on that, that's that's really key. Why has this taken so long? Um, I mean, this has been in rugby for ten years or more. I remember working with you know England rugby ten years ago with the England sevens team who were pioneering the use of I don't know whether it was catapult or but some kind of wearable. Why has it taken so long to get into tennis? The thing with tennis is because there are so many very small movements, one of the criticisms that's leveled at the technology is that it's it's GPS technology. It's it's a device speaking to a satellite, essentially. One of the criticisms that's leveled at it is, is it picking up those little finite movements? Um, But for me, the most important data is the accelerometer data, which is the device, the chip inside the device, which actually measures that impact force. It's nice to also have the GPS data, which tells us the speeds of movement. But even just to have the the accelerometry data, for me, is enough to have a a simple conversation with the team, coach, physio, S&C coach, psychologist, whoever else is interested in the data to, to to measure the impact. But that's been one of the reasons why tennis has been a a little bit slow to adopt some of this technology is because as a sport, the people, the sports scientists in, in the sport would have felt that actually, are they getting 100% accurate data? But for me, 
any data is better than no data. Measuring something's better than measuring nothing. I'd imagine, Matt, there's a sort of cost element as well. With you know, if you if you're a part of a big football team, then it's it's all very well. But um, how widely used is this in tennis? You know, across the top of the game and well th- throughout the top hundred, say. Yeah, I mean, certainly in what from what I've observed, and you never know what people are using when they are in their training centres. But what I've observed at tournaments and around just generally being around other players, it's very minimal. Uh, I would say there's a small handful of players. Players have been offered some of this technology to use for free on occasions, and they've not chosen to use it. So there's also, I think, potentially an education piece around it. I think there's a piece around the data and who owns that data, who gets access to that data, because it's potentially quite personal and quite telling. Um, But we'll go on to talk about the tournaments where we've used it uh, and the methods we use in tournaments. And actually, I don't feel like there needs to be this level of protectionism around around that data, because it doesn't actually determine the outcome of a match. You know, even if the other team knows that a player has been through X amount of loading or is so fast to a particular side, that's ultimately not going to be telling in the outcome of a match. It's useful for teams to know and use internally with themselves in planning their training. But I don't think it genuinely makes the difference between winning and losing in terms of the public knowing that data from a broadcasting perspective. But, you know, we, we, can, we can drill into that later on. So, I mean, on, on that, is it, has there been occasions when the data has surprised you? You know, for example, you thought somebody was super quick and mm, they're not as quick as I thought or vice versa. Every match, I mean, so when we did it at the Battle of the Brits, we had all the players wearing the tech. And in every match, there was a surprise to me. Um, so one particular player was incredibly high in their heart rates in that match. He was 180, 185 average for an entire game, so which meant that his max was 195, 197 heart rate max. And I'm watching him on the monitor, okay. uh, looking at his face, <laughs> thinking, I know what my face would look like at 185. And he was absolutely really? fine. He actually wanted to be working at that high, that high level because that was when he was actually performing at his best. Whereas there's another player, very similar level, whose heart rates were 120. And their player loads, their, the forces they were, they, were kind of in, they were dealing with were significantly lower than the other guy performing at the same level. So two players playing exactly the same level, playing each other in a match, total opposite ends of physical demands on their bodies and styles on their bodies, you know. And and it won't surprise you, I suppose, in a way, but Andy's data in terms of high-intensity accelerations and tennis movements at high intensity were the highest of the week. Things like that, it's just interesting to know Perhaps that's less surprising, but maybe it is surprising. You know, it's it's it starts a conversation at talking to the other players and saying, well, could yours be higher? Could you be more intense? Or saying, actually, with your style of play, does that suit you having that lower level of intensity, which it, it would do, I'm sure. So it's just to start to pick away some details. So the, the player that was at 180, was that was that a concern or is that that's just where he operates? No, he was he was winning games at that level, whereas some other players whose heart rate went that high happened to get their serve broken when it was that high. And some other players came out of the gates really quickly, really high performance data at the very start of the match against a better player, but just couldn't maintain that level of intensity and their physical data and their physical stats dropped significantly after the first five games. So what do you mean by intensity? What, what is it, what do you when you say data? What's intensity? Because I mean Djokovic would come out intense, but he'd probably be quite relaxed, I'd imagine, or Federer. Yeah. So we were looking at the player loads, so the amount of impact per game that that player was putting in, which was an indicator of effort. You're combining that with their heart rate as well to see how hard they were puffing as well, and the number of high intensity movements that they were putting in per game. You could see that this player's stats or the chart was super high in that first initial part of the match and then it kind of dropped off a shelf a little bit for the rest of the first set and the rest of the first set you know the higher ranked player ran away with the rest of that set then that player managed to recover 
in terms of their physical data, start of the second set, their, their data went back up again, and that second set was much closer. Now, of course, that doesn't tell the whole story of tactically, mentally, all of the other things that are going on, but these things are so interlinked anyway, tactical and physical, mental and physical, that actually to, again, have numbers to show those players and then to take those numbers into the training arena and say, okay, this is how intense you're being when you're really dominating and winning, or this is how low your intensity is when you're getting broken or when you're struggling. We need to see more of the high intensity, high quality data and see how long you can maintain those levels for potentially. Just one of the examples of where you could use that data from the match and take it into the training environment to say, okay, how are we going to practice now? So Matt, give us an example of how in practice you might take data from a match and use it to really shape a, a training session either that day or, or the next day or, or that week to, to really um, make it better replicate, I guess, the conditions that the player's going through in a match? Well, for me, the, the biggest thing I've learned in using all of this technology and the crux of this for me is that the amount of impact that tennis players go through in training versus the amount of impact that they go through in matches. So we're not talking intensity here because matches we know are more intense than training, but the amount of just general impact loading they put themselves through in training is significantly higher, sometimes two and three times higher than a match. So some training sessions are around seven, eight, or nine sets worth of impact in a training session. So a player that does two two-hour sessions in a day, which most elite-level juniors would be doing, and probably the significant amount of elite-level seniors would be doing, that's probably around eight to nine sets worth of, of impact loading on their body, which is like asking a marathon runner to run 40 miles a day, which you might ask a marathon runner to run 40 miles once, one day in the week. I don't know. I've never trained a marathon runner. But unlikely that you would expect them to do that five, six days a week. And so we've never really had this information before, but it's something that I'm really passionate about sharing with people is if you decide to put the player through six, seven sets worth of loading in a day, that's fine. But then know that for the next day and be thinking, okay, let's maybe go two sets the next day, three sets. And it's actually an incredibly small amount of loading because 80% of points, it's a broad figure, but generally around 80% of points are less than four shots in a match. Whereas actually when you think about a tennis session, it's kind of three-minute drills, you know, cross-courts, lines, you know, three hours of generally being quite active and moving a fair bit in those three hours. And so when you think about it, it kind of makes sense that the impact loading in practice is significantly higher than in matches. But, of course, the matches are the intense, the real, let's call it the white-hot intensity side of things in matches – which again, where players have come back from lockdown and we've seen players breaking down a little bit, having had a six months break from lockdown, actually it's that intensity that's probably hurt them, not so much the volume of matches, but the intensity of movements in the matches that have probably, and it's an assumption, been the thing that's caused problems from the physical perspective. You also look at players who've been and gone or players who are maybe reaching an, e an end to their careers now. And Miles, you may have a perspective on this too. I mean, before data, presumably there was a, an awful lot of guesswork going on and, and things must have gone wrong that didn't necessarily have to go wrong. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, since, since I played, there's so much change. I mean, it's gone, you know, pre-data and pre-sort of even slow motion camera, really, where, um, you know, even basic enough thing, which is not quite what we're talking about here, but just looking at footwork patterns and things like that, which, you know, Matt's um, done a lot of, we're actually um, mentioned at some stage, but there's a, there's a young boy we're working together. And, you know, that even that level of stuff, I wish I had, because I, you know, I knew that some days I moved well, and some days I didn't, and I didn't really understand why my feet were getting sort of tied in knots. Um, so I suppose that was maybe the on that sort of very basic initial data, slow, you know, s slow motion video, and then yeah, it, it's interesting for me because I was always I was fit, and I could 
I'd churn out a thirty meter run, a thirty minute run with any any tennis player or doing the track work. But then there were times on court where, like, my legs would be burning with the, the lactic acid, and and that's a question I sort of wanted to ask. Like, how might you change? I mean, we did a lot of the four hundreds together, Matt, the four hundred intervals or two hundreds. But I didn't right, recover from the lactic acid, for example. So it was maybe a different system, and I don't know if data might have, or just maybe a different process. Look, information and knowledge has changed and increased, but also the sport has changed as well. You know, if we look at tennis, you know, many decades ago, you know, rallies probably were longer. If we look at tennis in the 70s and 80s, rallies were longer. Players would potentially, I don't know, slice and not walk recover, but they wouldn't necessarily jam on those brakes and, and, and sprint in the other direction as often as players do now with the speeds of the balls and the technology and all those things. So. So the game has moved on, I think we would agree, in terms of the athleticism side of it. The players are now probably more muscle-bound, less body fat possibly, although some ex-players might slap me around the face for saying that. But, um, but I think we would agree the game is generally more athletic than it used to be. And technology of, of, of records has increased. So the demands on that body of that high-intensity movement for a very short burst of time, 80% of the points, the game has moved on in terms of that physical element. Therefore, the question I would pose now generally to our, our industry is, has training changed to reflect the demands of those changes in competition? Or are we still doing the vast majority of our training based on longer rallies, which happen less and less in our sport? It's a question not a statement. Interesting. On that note, uh, we're just watching French Open. And, you know, Yannick Noah and Mats Verlander, they showed one, I think I think it was the final, and two great athletes. I mean, their legs were toothpicks, weren't they? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, you look, at, you look at generally, you look at the profile of men's and women's players, uh, the modern players. And if you look at pictures, you know, just Googling pictures from... 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then into the new millennium, how players are changing and the the impact that that's having on the sport, which is fantastic. You know, we see the likes of the unbelievable athletes, the Demonars, the Felix Auger, these guys are just incredible athletes, all of them really now. They move so well to both sides. But when I watch them play, I'm thinking these these guys and girls are absolute kind of race cards. You know, they are really elite movers. And like I say, in, in terms of how we train these athletes, you know, and, and again, it's a question, you know, the, the way that we train, should it be far more emphasis on explosive movements and then and then recoveries rather than longer drills, slower movements when, when players train. But then to bring it back to that data and the impact loading, if you were to train in that way, that would replicate the demands of the sport more and also prepare the body more for what it's about to go through in matches. Uh, and I suppose, Matt, I mean, it makes complete sense, but the, the, the tussle you'd have with the coaches and, and I have is, you know, that makes absolute sense. But as a coach, you need the repetition at times. It's all very well saying, you know, we got, you know, your games, it's, it's especially get a big guy, it's serve and one hit into the net. But you actually need to practice that one hit over and over and over. So it's kind of, um, not contradicts, but it's a different kind of training. You do need, in my view as a coach, the volume of hitting that ball time and time again. Absolutely. And and this is where we've got to be balanced in this discussion. Uh, and uh, Miles raises a really good point. This isn't to say never to do high repetition and never to do longer drills and those things. It's to have a look with using, you know, with, if, we, if we have data at our fingertips, to have a look at the proportion of time we spend doing different things on the court throughout the week and off the court throughout the week as well. Do, those, do they reflect what we're trying to do on the court? Uh, it's certainly not to get tennis players to significantly reduce what they're doing or reduce the types of drills that they're doing and, and lose that rhythm of, of training and losing that repetition. But it's just to have a look at what we're doing, make a decision on the type of training that we're doing, 
and then ask the question, is that fit for purpose for what this player is going to need to do? I, I remember Louis Kaye talking to me, and this is before my time, about the old kind of debates between, let's call it German first strike tennis when, you know, the Boris and these guys came through and were thinking, right, big serve, big first shot. And then potentially the, the, the Spaniards saying, well, okay, we're going to, we'll beat you with head, heart and legs. You know, these, these would have been the debates that would have gone on down the years, I think, long before my time. So I'm making assumptions and people can, I'm happy to be told that I'm wrong on that. But you can see that kind of trade-off of, okay, well, do I only train for less than four shots then if that's, if that's the stats, if those are the stats, so I only train for four shots? And the answer is no, of course you need to train for those longer rallies and you need to be able to, to cope with difficult points as well. But, but my, my challenge, I suppose, or my question would be, how much of the week do you spend preparing for head, heart and legs, let's call it? And how much of the week do you spend preparing for the first strike tennis? And, and, and are we even having that discussion and making those decisions even in forming our training weeks? Is that something that teams are talking about? Again, it's a question I've, I've not sat with many teams and asked them this question. Louis Kaye, we should say, for, for the listeners who don't know, just a, one of the top British coaches and works very much in the doubles game, doesn't he, Matt? Um, I, I brought me on to another question that I wanted to ask about Roger Federer. You, you've both worked with one of the very, very top guys. I, I don't know how much insight you've had into what Pierre Paganini, Roger Federer's strength and conditioning coach, does with him, but he's often referred to in pretty glowing terms. If you can't tell us exactly what he does, can you give us an insight into what kind of stuff he might be doing to have given Roger such longevity and such consistency, albeit he's out at the moment, but you know, when you consider he's 39, it's pretty remarkable. I know about as much as anyone else, I'm afraid, in terms of how they train. I watched with interest some of the training sessions that they put up, I think when Roger was in Dubai a little while ago, and it seemed to be on the court and some physical stuff by the side of the court. And I've heard that a few times, uh, which makes perfect sense. But I also think there's been some good decision-making in terms of scheduling, in terms of practice, you know, when to go hard and when to back off, when to recover. I'm assuming that's the case in terms of that, because all of those decisions have a huge impact, I believe, on players' health and long-term kind of success. And longevity and obviously Roger is also an incredibly smooth mover let's call it you know he's he's very efficient in the way he moves you know it, it looks like there's there's very little impact going through his body because he certainly glides so gracefully around the court but I'm sure he would say no no there is quite a bit of impact going through my body you know my, my back and my knees will tell you yeah, it's an, on that note is um, I often tell the kids I coach because, you know, Roger looks like he just sort of flows around. But I remember there was one, you know, fortunately being on the side of the court a few times, um, close up to him playing. And there's actually a, there's a violence to his moving, almost the way he, he contacts the ball and, and the, the force of the feet pushing on the ground, which there was just, it was in Miami. It was a night match and I was right courtside and it really struck me. So... Yeah, it's interesting to hear, I mean, what sort of data you'd imagine or, and the other one I was going to ask about was Djokovic, because we know he's a phenomenal mover, but we don't see, or I don't, wouldn't categorize him as a power mover, but he obviously gets the ball pretty well, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he covers the court so, so well. Um, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm totally guessing here, but I would, I would think that Roger would be at that lower end of the scale more often in terms of high heart rates. And in terms of high impact forces, I'm, that's a guess. But just the way he plays versus your let's let's say your Andes, your Raffers, who to me, from an observational side of things, seem to put more kind of force and power and probably vertical force into the into the shot. Again, this is a guess and an assumption, but that's what it looks like to me. And so I I would think that they're stats and their data would be higher than someone like a Rogers, which again, who knows, but if, if that's the case over time, would give us an explanation as to why Rogers still there where he is at the age he is. How much can the data 
correct bad habits. I mean, I'm sure if I was to wear something all day, it would tell me that I've been sitting at my desk far too long before I get up. Um, What is the most common mistake that a tennis player is making? Well, like I say, for me, it's the overall load. Uh, And the first thing to say is that every player has their own individual threshold for their loading as well. Some players have just grown up playing three, four hours a day, and they wouldn't have it any other way and actually would feel very underprepared if they were to reduce that. But to have some numbers next to that, to those hours, because time for me is such a, it's not really a very useful tool for measuring a tennis session. Because so often you would see a three-hour tennis session, which is a lot of sitting around, discussing things, working through issues. Whereas actually you could say a one-hour session, okay, we're only hitting for an hour today right no time to chat super intense sprinting around and actually those the 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 loading in that one hour session could be close to maybe even more than the three hour session depending on what's being worked on so time is this really kind of for me it's a bit of a useless measure really it's a measure if you don't have a a device which is which can be expensive but really yeah time is not something that i that's why I want to get players wearing this wearable tech so that you can have a conversation around how tough was that one hour session today? You know, was it light? Didn't look light to me, but let's find out. You know, so it, it's that, that's, that's for me is, is probably the overall mistake. But perhaps to see it in more, more positive terms, like I said at the start, it's also to say, well, you've just won back to back tournaments. How did we prepare? for those tournaments, you know, in terms of data, you were feeling great on day one of that tournament. Well, what loading profile did you go through to feel great on day one of that tournament physically? You know, did we did we start to reduce things four days before, three days before, and how much did we reduce it by? Just so that you can replicate, it's very difficult to replicate, but, but get as close to replicating high performance as possible, and that's the battle for all these players who, like we talked about, compete all year round, is actually they're fighting to feel as good as possible, as often as possible. And I would say 95% of them would be in some sort of pain every week. So trying to go through the year and actually operate at peak performance by understanding the loading that they've been through and having measured it, and it's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater as well. Uh, and I think that's something that we should talk about. And I know Miles is keen to talk about. It's not paralysis by analysis because that can also be a mistake of a sports science, sports medicine team member as well. Yeah, so on that, you talked about, you know, fighting to feel good and, and just wondering, you know, so sometimes if the, you might be in the middle of a tournament, a player might be in the middle of a tournament and the data is saying, oh, but, you know, you're a bit tired. <laughs> you got to be careful. And, and, and sometimes players, you know, rock up at tournaments, their game feels horrendous and, you know, they fight through a couple of matches. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot can be overridden. I, I suppose you've got to be careful that, that that's my concern as a coach, that the data starts to lead almost the player's feeling and, you know, maybe come off a session. Let's look at the data. Was it a good session? Um, and then, because we've obviously got, I mean, it's critical side, but on top of that, you've also got the whole mental aspect about belief and, and all that sort of stuff, haven't you? Totally agree. The data is there to look at over time and spot some trends that may or may not be happening with your player, but it's really a resource for the team to use and then disseminate which bits they feel are pertinent to the player. It isn't for everyone to be standing around a monitor mid-practice to say, well, how hard have you just worked? And because, because really, that would be taking it too far. I feel like teams should wear this, this stuff for a period of time, learn some lessons from it, understand a few things from it, then put it down for a while and go play and go compete and all the rest of it. And just pick certain times in the year, like training blocks, off-seasons in December, these times of the year, to have a look at this stuff and learn some lessons and then put it down and go play. And I, don't, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but Jose Mourinho came to watch one of Andy's practices at, uh, at Queens. Uh, he just came and stood courtside and Andy had the catapult vest on. And I was, you know, quite nervy around Mr. Mourinho, you know, uh, but went and stood next to him 
And he said, oh, Andy's wearing one of the uh, GPS technology. He said, you know, they're, they're really interesting, get some good information, but you don't want to make all your decisions purely based on that. You don't want to, as Miles says, you don't want that leading your decisions as a manager, as a coach, as a player. You don't want that leading the decisions. And I don't think anyone who's invented this technology or who uses it or believes in it thinks that's how it should be used. You know, I think that generally people would say it's a piece of information which we take, use, or actually don't use. We choose not to use that piece of information depending on how we feel it's going to impact the performance of the player. So it's a, it's a resource, not a decision maker. And presumably, is it... Is it different, the application of the information, you'd use it perhaps differently for a 17, 18-year-old, thinking back to an 18-year-old Andy Murray, uh, who's cramping a lot or whatever it is, to a, an older player who's more established in their routines? I mean, give, give us an idea of how much, how, how much differently you might use it for a younger player. Again, I think it's similar in a way that actually you're just using it to learn about that player and their responses. Now, the thing with a younger player is that actually they it might take them longer to experience pain or to break down. They're more robust. You know, they backflip out of bed after a, after a tough training session the next morning. So, you know, you, you might use it to see how much harder you can push that young player. But again, that also for me might be a bit of a mistake in a way that just because they aren't necessarily turning up sore the next day, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should go keep going harder. But it is, again, just, just getting some information and spotting patterns, really. At what point in the session does the quality start to drop? You know, and, and is that something that we don't mind and we want to train through, you know? And, and how much load could they handle when you first started working with them versus when you, after working with them for a year, how are they looking after X amount of loading. These are all lessons that you can learn from that player. Whereas again, your player at the opposite end of the career towards the end of the career might be really not wanting, they, they want a minimum dose of loading, really. They want to maximize the performance benefit of the training session with a minimum dose of impact loading because they will undoubtedly be sore and protective of joints. And so as a team, you'd be trying to figure out well, what's the minimum dosage of loading we need to give this player in order for them to feel good and perform well? And it's, it's not an exact science at all. But again, you can have an objective conversation after a period of time, competition or training, to say, did we get that right? What did we learn? I'm also fascinated to ask well, and get both of your views on the, S, the, the strength and conditioning coach coach's role in managing load when a player is on such an incredible run of form like Andy was in 2016 whatever it was when he made 12 out of 13 finals you know 65 wins out of 70 or whatever at what stage does a conditioning coach say excuse me we're playing too much tennis but when you're on that good a run is that even possible it's a difficult conversation it's even more difficult if you don't have data to back your points up um, but it's a difficult conversation, really, as a team, because if a player's had a really good week, and I'm sure every team has faced this, if the player's gone really deep in an event, there might be the physical team saying, great, let's recover and have a rest. And the tennis side might be saying, no, no, we need to keep this momentum going. They're playing great. We want to go to the next event and try and win that one. Neither, neither person is wrong. You can see both sides of the coin, depending on the scenario and the player you're working with. But... At least having that conversation for me is a giant leap forward of actually of a team sitting around the table and saying, okay, let's make a decision here together around this situation. Um, and each team will come up with their own answer, in my view. But to even have that conversation, you know, and to have a coach open enough to turn around and speak to the sports science, sports medicine side and say, what do we, what do we think? I feel this. What do you guys feel? But I do know it's it's always this tentative balance because sometimes a coach may feel like a player is being held back by the, the physical team because they want to protect the athlete and have them healthy and feeling good and not take risks with the athlete's body. But actually, the coach is there to drive performance and get wins, especially at the elite level, 
pro level of the game. So you can also understand their desire to keep going. So it's this tentative balance that as a team, and Miles talked about our relationship as a team when we all first got together and our personalities and how they all bonded. And for me, that's the real crux of a good team is that actually if you all have this bond and this trust with each other and you can all put your egos to one side and figure out, like we said, what's best for the athlete because that's the only thing that's important, then for me that's um, – that's that's what a good team does, and uh, and and I feel like that's something that we've tried to do as best as we can. And this plays into another area, doesn't it? Which is injury managing injuries, and you refer to it as the politics of long term injury, or, or of a long term injury, and the fact that you even talk about it in that way is interesting. What is the success to? I guess managing, from your perspective, a player and a team around a long-term injury. Yeah, it comes back to that um, everybody, everybody putting their egos to one side and figuring out what's best for the athletes, which is not an easy thing to do for people who feel like they're experts in their field uh, and feel like they know what's best, is to actually walk in the door each day with your ego to one side and and have open and honest discussions about what's best for the player. And because you have so many moving parts with a long-term injury, uh, lots of outside influences, other experts that you're tapping into, or not even ones you're not tapping into, other experts that are offering their help, because especially in high-profile athletes' cases, there's always a, a nice long queue of people that feel that they've got the answer, which actually is a nice thing, in many ways, because people feel like they can help and everyone feels like they've got the answer. But to be honest, most of the people outside of the scenario don't even know the question because they don't necessarily know all of the details and the minutia of that situation. But anyway, as a team, as a team, you have to do your best to put egos to one side and figure out what's best for the player and stick together as well. Because under this intense scrutiny, and a long-term injury, you know, six months, a year, two years, three years, whatever it is, is a long time to have all of that kind of scrutiny and that pressure on you as a team. And if there are cracks there, you know, they can start to, they can really start to open up over time if you're not together. Hard not to pick up on Andy Murray's recent, you know, what what's happened recently here. I mean, Everyone around the world would have been delighted to have seen him perform so well. His amazing comeback against Nishioka at the US Open, five sets. On the flip side, what does that do to his body that you know everyone around the world just has no idea about? Yeah, it's just again, it comes back to that intensity. You know, it uh, it takes its toll, but it's the same for everybody. You've got to recover and go. If you win, you've got to recover and go again. You know, you get one rest day and then you're back in. Yeah, it's tough. It's a brutal sport. That's why we all love to work in it, watch it. And yeah, look, it's clearly the older you get, those matches do probably have more and more of an impact on your body. You find it harder to recover. We would all relate to that getting older now and going out for the odd run and how you feel now versus when you used to go out running when you were 17, 18. And like I say, backflip out of bed the next day. It's, uh, yeah, for everything, there's a consequence and there's a trade-off. And that's, I suppose, get comes even more into sharper focus um, the later you get into your career, I guess. Now, I won't, I won't ask you specifics because it's a little unfair. But, I mean, looking back, was there a lot you would have done differently? And, and so be, before you answer, I'll tell you a little story of mine. I mean, I always know we, we played that tennis football game for hours, which you might still have if you cry out in the night. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. But... I think, you know, people used to say during slams, oh, you need to rest, you need to do, and and they were right. But I wonder, a young Andy Murray, 19 years old, resting, lying on his bed, he probably would have been stewing and burning way more energy than out there. So um, that's why you say that people aren't necessarily right or wrong, but just wondered how much you look back and think, done, is there a lot of stuff you would have done differently? I don't know, really. And um be an interesting one for Andy to answer as well. You turned out to be a pretty good athlete, didn't he? <laughs> exactly. That's the thing is that what he's done got him to where 
he was. Obviously, he's an amazing player, but the way he has trained, both on and off the court, has helped him achieve the things he's achieved. And and like like I said, you have to evaluate the individual that's in front of you as well and who they are and how they are and how they like to train. Um, because if I took the player that has the low impact profile versus the player that has the high impact profile and tried to train them in the opposite way, you know, and tr- train the low impact guy like the high impact guy wants to and, and probably should train, then actually that's not going to work for that individual. So it's it's very difficult to go back retrospectively and think what would we have done differently because Andy has had a, a fantastic career. You never can tell also what you may or may not have done, which has necessarily caused an injury. And you also can't tell what you may or may have done that's prevented an injury, which is why it's, it's such a, a grey conversation. It's not a black and white conversation. And he has put himself through a lot of load in his career. We all, we all have seen that in terms of the matches he's played, the way he's played matches, just his, his style of play, the intensity with which he goes about his business. You know, as I said, there's a, there's a cost to, to all of this. You know, that's just, that's just life. And I think, sorry, in that trade-off, I think, which I've said many times, I think, you know, he took a lot of belief from that, didn't he? He kind of, so maybe he needed that. That's definitely something that he's talked about in the past. Is, is taking that confidence into a grand slam, knowing he's done the work uh, and that he's hit, hit certain levels off the court, but also that he's done a certain amount on it is something that he would absolutely have wanted to make sure that he did. And I've spoken to other pros as well. Alex Karecha was always very keen on saying that before a French Open, there were certain things that off the court he wanted to make sure that he'd got done and that he'd achieved off of the court, which gave him that confidence to know that he could go through seven best of five set matches at the French. And he knew that because he'd done it. So again, it's that trade-off, always the trade-off between performance and injury prevention. It's this, this balance that every team is trying to strike. And I guess, Matt, what that comes down to is that you're trying to drive what we call best practice all the time so that somewhere in the middle there is just you're, you're doing all you can, which is an immaculate segue into just rounding up and asking you finally just about your your new online performance programme, Maximise Your Performance, it's called, for, for tennis players and parents as well. And I, I was interested as a parent myself of, you know, boys, very active boys. What about the, you know, what's important about the parent bit there? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one being yeah being a parent myself and, and watching my child now play sport and, and enjoy himself and so on. Uh, clearly, the fun aspect has to always be there and has to always be at the forefront. Something that I've now noticed in the young players that I'm going back to working with is is the stability aspect of all of this and making sure that all of the that the body is strong enough to cope with the demands of what they're doing in their sport and I'm not talking young children but when you start to get pre-adolescent 12 13 14 and the body is changing so much that working on the stability and the way that they move watching the way that they perform their sport and the way they move within their sport and picking out certain areas that they could perhaps be stronger in and giving them different exercises and challenges physical challenges that they can improve on to improve that strength and stability really, for me, pays big dividends in terms of, again, their long-term health in playing that sport. Because I see a lot of teenagers, when they get to late teens and kind of early adulthood, that haven't ticked that box as their body has changed and they haven't worked on that stability and strength element and are still quite wobbly in their joints and their bodies. And actually, again, when, when, when you start to then really put loading onto a body that's a bit wobbly, you know, if we think of the muscles as that kind of, as that scaffolding for that structure, that it's really important that that's strong and that that's able to support the body. Uh, And that's something I'm quite passionate about with growing and young athletes in any sport is that they make sure that they are strong enough because usually the fitness side, the conditioning side will probably take care of itself and if they're not quite fit enough, you can add some conditioning in to their training. 
important, but to me, far more important that they are strong and stable enough in their body to put up with that uh, that loading, especially in tennis. This sounds like it's going to be a book as well, Matt. Well, I have written a book, funnily enough. Funny you should mention that. But it's actually not a fitness book. It's more of a life skills book, which is basically, um, which I started to write just on the train when I was in and out of uh, going in and out of work, essentially. And it sounds a little bit cheesy, but I was kind of thinking, what notes would I write to my son? If, uh, if, he, if I wasn't around for him, what notes would I write to him about life and about how to be and how to try and achieve um, everything that you can in life? And, um, and so I started to write a few of these notes and more and more notes became a few pages. And I thought, well, OK, let's let's send this off to some publishers and see what they reckon. And so, yeah, I've got, I've got a book. It's called The Way of the Tortoise, which is coming out next year, which is um it basically draws a link between the fable of the hare and the tortoise, because I often get asked so often in life, you know, how do I work with an Andy Murray? You know, people who've just graduated, how do I work with someone at the very top? And my first answer is, well, you know, it's going to take you at least 10 years, really. And it, and it should take you 10 years to get to that level, because people who jump to the very top without taking those years and learning those lessons along the way, often find that when they get to that point, they, they haven't got all of the skills that they needed to develop when they get there. So it's, it's that journey that's important and setting your values that need to be correct. But the other side of it that's important to me is the soft skill side of things. And again, it comes back to what Miles and I were talking about in terms of Team Murray and how we all blended well together is that we all utilised our soft skills and how we dealt with various situations and each other very well. And to me, that's what makes the difference between good practitioners and really good practitioners are the ones that, that nail the soft skills and, and how to be in situations rather than so much how to do in different situations. Fascinating insight into the backroom engine behind a world-class competitor. Our thanks to Matt Little and, of course, Miles McLagan. For more on Matt's performance programme, go to matt-little.online and you can also head to Twitter and Instagram. That's at mattlittlesnc. Next week, we'll be in Paris looking ahead to the final ATP Masters 1000 of the year, the Rolex Paris Masters. See you then. 